So when we look at the book of Malachi, uh, we're going to do some background history here in just a minute. Um, but for some of us in the room, we've done Advent series before, and for some of us, we haven't. Um, but even for those who have, I think it's a good reminder uh, to really just start off this morning uh, with explaining why we do an Advent series. Um, and then as we get into the sermon, we'll understand why Malachi. And so Advent is a small word, but a word that we don't use often. Um, but it simply means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. So the Advent really just means the coming of, right? The coming of something important, something notable, something that or someone or an event that is significant, okay? So as we look at this, we could use the word Advent for almost anything that occurs that is of utmost utmost importance. But as we think of Advent and the Christmas season, this is the, the greatest Advent that has ever occurred. And, and we're going to get into this. We're also longing for a second advent that will be most likely, uh, even though you really can't compare the two because they're so different, but so important, almost just as important as the first, right? So advent season technically begins four Sundays before Christmas Day, all right? So four Sundays before, but since Christmas is following on a Saturday this year, we're going to finish up this series uh, the day after Christmas. So Advent normally starts four weeks before Christmas and ends on Christmas itself. Um, as you read through the Advent series, if you're choosing to do that as a family, you'll actually start that on December the 1st and you'll read it through December the 25th and it'll end on the 25th. Um, as we're preaching through an Advent calendar, essentially, um, we're starting four weeks prior and we're going to end the day after Christmas in our sermon series. And we're going to be looking at Malachi through that entire time together um, with some other scriptures sprinkled in to help us focus that on the birth of Christ. So why focus on Advent, though? Advent is this time of the year as we, as God's children, celebrate the birth of Christ through the virgin birth whom we eventually would die the death of all mankind deserved for bringing salvation to all who would believe in him, which also reminds us of the hope of his second coming, his return one day. And so we're going to look back at the birth of Christ while looking forward to the hope that we now have in Christ, looking forward to his second coming. And really just some verses that I want to use this morning and we may even use in the weeks to come to kind of focus our mind on the coming of our Savior. Um, John 1, 1 through 5 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. Apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created in him was life, and life was the light of man. The light shines in darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And then, just to kind of echo some verses we read earlier in our um, worship time, Isaiah 9, 1-2 says, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of a former times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun, in the land of Nephetai, but in the future he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land of the east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of all the nations. 
The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And so this morning as we begin our Advent series, um, I'm not sure it's the next slide. If you don't mind, go ahead and turn it to it, me, to it for me. We're going to really look at this idea of darkness in the land. During our Advent series, that's kind of the major theme, is darkness in the land. And what we're going to see and try to do here is not only understand how the people in Malachi's day would have, um, how the original audience, the, the people who Malachi is writing to, would have been able to uh, not only step into their shoes, but to step into the shoes of the people that, in, that played a direct part in the birth of our Savior and understanding the greatness of this news. Because in this moment in Malachi, we're going to see the darkness that had already laid foot in the society around them. But not only that, but we're going to see that as we look 400 years after this was written, the land was dark, as Isaiah says in chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. See, the reality is the light stepped into darkness. The darkness did not overcome it, but he shone through it. And so as we think of Advent this year, I want us to think of a complete darkness of sin covering the earth, a moment in which God had been silent for 400 years, and in this silence bust forth the light of a Savior that would redeem all who would believe and trust in Him. And so for us to get there, I want us to look at the book of Malachi. Because Malachi is a very interesting book. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. I'm going to try to do this part very quickly. But Malachi, for what we understand, is the very last book, not only positioned in the Old Testament, but the very last book written. So the words of Malachi was the last moment that God used a prophet during what we call the Old Testament to speak to his people. Now, we should rightly understand that John the Baptist would have been the last prophet of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant because he was before the New Covenant, before Christ had died and started the New Covenant with man. So, But Malachi was his last voice of God speaking to the people before he goes silent for 400 years. Now, that 400 years is very significant. The Egyptians are enslaved for 400 years. Um, 40 days they stay in the boat. This is a significant time there. But within this time period, we see that the darkness that had fallen on the people in Malaga's time had just got even darker. Almost as if the words that God spoke to these people was almost ignored altogether. So... Let's make sense of Malachi and its placement, though. We have no background information on the prophet other than then his name uh, means my messenger. Let's look at verse 1 together. This is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. We know nothing about Malachi except for he is a minor prophet according to the canon of Scripture. All right, so we know nothing of Malachi other than his name simply means my messenger. 
And so the messenger of the Lord is delivering the oracle of the word of the Lord. Now, that word oracle is not one we think of often. And if you're like me, most likely you're not. The only time I think of the word oracle is found in a Matrix reference of the movie that came out in the late 90s, 99, 98, something like that. And there was an oracle that could see the future. That's the only time I have ever in my life used that word or heard that word outside of a context of Scripture. See, but that word means burden. That God delivered the burden of his heart to his people through his messenger. It's not just the word of the Lord. It's not just a prophecy of the Lord. This is a burden of the Lord. His heart is aching for what his people are doing. And so he's using his messenger to deliver this burden through the word format because this is how God communicates with his people. It's how God still communicates us through the word of God. So he's writing this uh, to a remnant of Israel who returned to Judah after 70 years of exile in Babylon. Now, to make that make sense for you, Judah was taken into captivity in three waves by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. The temple was destroyed, all of those things, around 605 to 586, okay? And then King Sirius of Persia defeated the Babylonian king and took over the vast empire, and then King Sirius issued a decree freeing Jewish exiles to, to return to their ancestry home. All right, so Judah taken by captivity by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. The king uh, Sirius destroys and defeats Babylonian king and takes over the people. He eventually provides this decree allowing the Jews to go back to their homeland. In the first group of people, there was about 50,000 exiles that went back to Jerusalem and Ezra. And the point of Ezra was so that they could rebuild the temple. When you read through the book of Ezra, if there was two books of the Bible that I would love to preach right now, but we're going to have to just wait, it's Ezra and Nehemiah. Because these are the last two books written um, these two books were written kind of before Malachi, and they were written because it was the return of the, the exiled Jews, uh, Israelites to, to Jerusalem. And in this, the first thing they do when they get back to the people of the place that God had them, it wasn't to rebuild their homes. It wasn't to rebuild the temple. It wasn't to rebuild the homes, to rebuild the wall. It was to rebuild the temple. Though... We see that when you read through it, they did disobey just slightly. But the purpose that Ezra had was to rebuild the temple of God. But spiritual apathy misplaced their priorities and the people began to build their own homes, focusing on themselves rather than Christ, rather than God. Eventually, though, this guy named Ezra comes in, he helps them finish it, and the temple is completed and dedicated in 515 and 515 BC. Okay? And then Esther takes place. And the second round of Jews come back to Babylon. And this is when Nehemiah enters the scene. And Nehemiah enters the scene. He brings them back to worship, but he also brings them back to building up the wall. 
So the people of God became not a people of God. They were in exile. They come back to the land of God. They build the temple after some uh, forcing hands. And after they build the temple is when Nehemiah comes into the scene and they rebuild the wall. Meaning that they're now our people, right? In this day and time, if you didn't have a wall around your city, you really wasn't established as a people because there was nothing protecting you from the outside. So they were in exile and they come back to the place in which God had for them and they build the wall, they, they rebuild the temple, they do all of these amazing things. And then the book of Malachi is only about 70 years after the returning of the people to Jerusalem. And when you read this, what you're going to see is you've maybe even picked up when Nick read it just a moment ago. It's almost as if they forgot everything that they had been through. When you read Ezra and you read Nehemiah, you see this deep love for God coming out through the preaching of the word, through the singing of the people, through the marching around the city, worshiping him, coming back to the the practices that was installed by them, to them, by Moses and God in that moment uh, during the wilderness. That they finally come together, they make the sacrifice again where they're supposed to do it. They're excited. But it didn't go beyond their generation. And the next generation up, Malachi, does the same thing that all other Israelites did throughout all of history, and they forgot about God. So the reality here is when we think of the book of Malachi, we're seeing the darkness that has now come back over the people of God as they're seeking their own desires and doing what they want to do rather than what God is calling them to do. We can certainly think of ourselves and think of our current day. Last thing I want to tell us about Malachi before we get into the, the sermon is that it's really broken up in seven sections. Seven oracles from God. This morning, we're going to be looking at two of those oracles. Okay, Seven oracles. So seven um, expressions of God's burden to his people by his messenger. There's seven of these. We're going to look at two of them this morning. David's going to tackle one of them next week and Troy in two weeks. Then I'll take care of the the other three in the remaining two sermons. But the two we're going to look at this morning, and it's the two points we're going to make in the sermon, it's really just very simple, is that as we see that there's darkness in the land, that God's love is denied. And then we also see that God's honor is despised. God's love is denied and God's honor is despised. So as we do that together, I want us to first and foremost look at that very, very first one. That's God's love. That God's love is denied. So my prayer would be as we approach this, as we look at these two oracles, that it would point us to our Savior. And so let's look at verse 2 together. Verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Ezra, is not 
Esau's Jacob brother, declares the Lord, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jacket jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders, borders of Israel. See, first and foremost, what we see in chapter, in verse 2, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. God is declaring his love for his people. The first thing out of the word of the, the messenger of God in this oracle isn't destruction, isn't, isn't control. Correcting the rebellion. It isn't, um, it isn't correction or any of those things. It just simply says, I have loved you. Remember, this is a constant cycle that the Israelites had been since day one. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the curse of the serpent entering the scene. But in that curse, you see a promise. We're going to read it again in a moment. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then from that point forward, we see this constant battle between Israel and God of Israel doing what God had called them to do and Israel rebelling time in and time out over and over and over again. But I would argue that it's never been so quickly abandoned as we see in the book of Malachi. Merely 70 years prior to this, the people of God are returning, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding their land, worshiping and glorifying God for how he has delivered them from exile. And just one generation later, we see the darkness just falling again on the people of God. But listen to his words. I have loved you. And how do they respond? But you say, how have you loved us? That should break our heart. Now, it should break our heart, but we should be quick to understand that we are no different than them. That often God pours his love out onto us, and he has rightly done so in Christ Jesus. And as we continue to go towards sin, rather going towards righteousness, what we are doing is responding the same way they have. And in the response here, they says, but you say, how have you loved us? They have forgotten what God has already done for them. It's only been 70 years. And they have quick to forget Then God's response, is it not Esau's, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with them. The Lord is angry forever. 
Now, I could spend a lot of time in this whole idea of God hating Esau and loving Jacob. And we may even be quick to take that word hate and to change it into something else. A displeasure, a displeasure or a different kind of love. Or a different purpose. Or whatever the case may be. We can take it and we can run with it. And we can try to do those things. But I would say that's a manipulation of the text. And in this. We see it again in Romans. That God said what God said. And Esau he hated and Jacob he loved. To the point that he even laid waste to his hill country. And left his heritage to jackals of the desert. And Edom is the descendants thereof, Esau. And he's saying they can rebuild all they want, but I'm going to tear it down again. And what we see in this is that God is trying to call the people of God to remembrance of one of the first moments in which the love of God was displayed and declared to them, so much so that this is what they hinged their faith upon. Is that Jacob, the father of Israel, was loved by God, given all of the inheritance to. Why? So that God could work within their lives. And work through all of their lives to bring something greater than even Jacob or David or Abraham ever thought they could have. Verse 5. I'm going to touch it here, but I'm going to land it in it at the very end of the sermon. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Now, what I want us to be quick to understand is says, Your own eyes shall see this. We could take that and we could think that this is a very literal translation of this generation shall see that this would unfold in, in front of their eyes. That's not necessarily what the author is meaning here. What he's trying to get at is the people of God, the Israelites, your descendants. They will see this, and what they will see is that they will see that great is the Lord where? Beyond the borders of Israel. This is a decree that God's love was more than just for the Israelites as a people. So he's calling them into remembrance of the covenant that he made with them and the love that he has for them. Their response to him is, how have you loved us? And then he ends with this idea that his love is even greater than just for them, but for all of mankind. We're going to get at that in just a moment. So first oracle we see here is God's love is denied. The second one, God's honor is is despised. God's honor is despised. First thing we're going to see, just to break this up a little more natural, um, instead of trying to tackle all um, eight, you know, 20 verses there, um, we see in verses 6 through 10, the failure to honor God. In verse 6, it says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? So he starts off with this example. He says, a son honors his father, and a, a master, and a servant his master. 
So a father is honored by his son and a servant, a master is honored by his servant. And then he says, if I am a father, this is something that priests would have understood very easily, that this is God the Father, and if he's God the Father, then he is due honor. But not only that, he's a master. If he's a master, where is his fear? Where is there fear of him? But look who he's talking to. He says, oh, priest. We're going to get to the the people of God in just a moment, very briefly, but we're going to get there. But what we see here is the the audience originally, uh, uh, right now, is specifically to the priest of God's people. The the people that were supposed to have it together. The people that were were supposed to be leading and teaching and, and developing the people. The people that were supposed to offer the right sacrifices and offer the right kind of worship and be in control of the temple. says, you despise my name. So the first question, the first statement essentially was, I love you. The response was, how do you love us? Now he says, you despise my name. And what is the response? How have we despised your name? How have we? Are they truly this blind to their sinfulness? Or are they just this displeased with what God has done in their life? Who knows? Verse 7, though. God answers very pointedly by offering polluted food upon my altar. Going to pause there. We've been reading as a church, if you've been joining in with the reading plan, we've got to that point to where most people fall off. We're at Leviticus and all of those things, right? We're talking about the Levitical law. We're talking about the sacrifices. We're talking about all of those things. Very, 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 very boring at times. We're just going to throw it out there and be honest, right? Very boring at times. And then we're going to get to numbers, and it's going to get even more boring because there's a bunch of numbering of people. There's a census, per se. But one thing that you should note in reading through Leviticus, if you don't get anything else about it, is that God takes himself very seriously and demands strict obedience from his people. Very strict obedience. Why? Because his name is worthy to be praised in a very specific way. This is in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, so he's at, he, he makes this statement, the response How have we polluted you? He responds again by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer up the lambs or sick, is that not evil? Present to your governor, will he accept you and show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that you may be gracious to us with such great gift of your hand. Will he show favor in any of you, says the Lord of hosts. So he says, look, you're providing this polluted uh, sacrifice. And they, they respond by asking, what do you mean? How is it polluted? He says, look, you're providing blind lambs, blind sacrifices and sick animals to be sacrificed to me. 
you read through the, the Leviticus setting here, what you see in all of that is God demanded the best. Not the worst, not the least, not the second best, the best, the greatest. Even to the point that the first male offspring would be dedicated to the Lord. But he went a very basic understanding of this. He says, present that food to your governor. Will he accept you and show you favor? He says, look, instead of giving me the, the blind animals, the sick animals, I want you to, to, to take that and I want you to slaughter that. I want you to feed it and I want you to give it to your governor and see what he does about it. This very basic. Most of us in here are either husbands or wives or fathers or mothers. If you were feeding your family, would you want the best animal to slaughter and to cook and prepare for them? Or would you want that sickly animal in the corner of the field? They're despising God's altar by taking that what was not supposed to be offered to him and giving it to him anyway. Verse 9, he says, Now entreat favor of the Lord. Make your sacrifice, pray to God, ask for his favor, ask for him to be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? God is kind of talking in the third person here. But he says, will he show favor to you? Will I show favor to you with your horrible sacrifices? Will I actually show favor to you? The answer is no. Right. Verse 10 to end this kind of section. He says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. What he's saying here is, I wish there was just one among you that would shut the doors of the altar so that nothing would be sacrificed to you. Plain and simple, he says, it would be better for you to quit sacrificing to me than for you to be sacrificing things in vain. They displeased God in what they were doing. And not only that, they either are ignorant to it or their hearts are so hardened that they just don't care. And as I said Several times already, we're only about 70 years separated from the coming back into the land of God. And the people are so already so wicked and turned against him that they're defiling and they're failing to honor God by giving things to him that they should not be. Next thing we're going to see in verse 11 through 14 is the priest and the people's act of false worship. We've already seen this already unfold some. He says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. We're going to note this here. I'm going to talk about it for just a second, but I'm going to come back to it at the end of the sermon. What we see in this is God is now declaring that due to their, their inability or their unwillingness to sacrifice to the Lord as they are called to, 
Even greater than that, there's somebody that will eventually shut the door to the offerings and the sacrifices. And when this occurs, his name will be worshipped everywhere. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. Verse 12. But you profane in, in it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is the food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it says the Lord of hosts. You bring what was taken by violence and lame and sick, and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? So now he's getting very specific. But what he's getting at in this is that the, the issue is twofolded. Is that the priests are accepting these things and burning them at the altar. This should have never been the case. They should have never allowed these things to occur. But they did. But not only did they accept it, but it comes from a different heart, a heart of man that is wicked. Look at verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. It's twofolded here. The priests are making sacrifices that they should not be sacrificing, but they're doing so because the people of God are bringing false sacrifices to the priest. The priest should be shutting that stuff down. They're unwilling to, but the people of God are not out of, out of the gray area yet. They're still going to be judged for their, their inability, their unwillingness, whatever it may be, to, to do what is right. It says here, a male flock and vows it. That these people are taking their best and they're offering it to somebody else, giving it to someone else for something else. Rather than giving God what is God's. Before we move on, I think a very pointed application would be simply, how often do we do the same thing in our lives? That we would take the best of who we are, the best of what we have, the best of our circumstances, the most of our time. And we'd put it all of these different places and we would give God what remained. So we may not be sacrificing bulls in this building this morning and Sam would really hate us for that. but we're sacrificing something at the altar. Scripture tells us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow after him daily. But if you're much like I am, often it's as if God gets the second hand dealt rather than the first thoughts. So the issue here is that the priests and the people are acting in false worship. Then, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2, we see God's judgment against the false worship. <coughs> Starting in verse 1, it says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart and give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. 
It's a very confusing set of scripture. But God says, look, if you don't do this, I'm going to curse you. But the reality is I know you're not going to do it, so I've already cursed you. And so he's cursed the, the, the priest of these people. Why? Because they're not taking to the word of God at heart. In verse 3, he says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung among your faces. And listen, if you don't know what the word dung means, it means feces or it means um, number two for the kids in the room. It's number two. He says, I will spread number two on your faces and the dung of your offspring. So the number two of your offsprings you shall take away with you. So he's saying that you're going to be you're just going to be just destroyed, humiliated in a horrific place. Why? Because you're not willing to do what I have called you to do. And then verses four through seven. He reminds the people of the covenant made with Levi and why that's significant is that didn't stop. That covenant was supposed to be with all of the priests, but due to their disobedience, it could not continue. In verse 4, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord. What's that covenant with Levi? If you do what you're supposed to do, then I'm going to honor you and take care of you. But if you don't, then I am going to destroy you. Why? Because you're profaning my name, and my name is greater than all. Think about it. Not too long after this covenant is made with Levi, if I'm not mistaken, two of his own children are destroyed. Why? Because they took and they tried to do something they were not called to do. God takes this seriously. Verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in all of my name. The true instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He returned many from iniquities. For the lips of the priest should guard knowledge. And the people should seek instruction from his mouth. And he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. He's saying, look, Levi did what he was supposed to do. Because even when the people in their ignorance or their disbelief or their lack of just paying attention or their heartfelt worship, when people brought these false things to, to the altar of God to be sacrificed and worship God in this manner, Levi protected them from that. They, he guarded them. He taught them. He led them. He directed them. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He's calling them into remembrance what their job is. Their job isn't only to make just any sacrifices, but very specific sacrifices. And if that is their calling, their calling is also to lead and guide and direct and to teach and to develop the people of God to do what is right. But the priests have got it all messed up. We talked about this in Titus so much. But the people of God will never do more than the leaders over the people of God. So this is different, right? Pastors are not priests. We do not make sacrifices for you. You can pray to Christ as we can pray to Christ. 
But in this, there's a lot of comparison to, to teaching and to, to guiding and instructing and guarding and all of those wonderful things. God's people are, are called to be led and directed by pastors and elders and all of those wonderful things. So this is just the call for us to remember the importance, not only of that, but the importance of doing what God has called us to do as elders and pastors. Protecting God's people from whatever it may be, whatever the cause may be. But then in 8 and 9, God comes back to that judgment aspect. He says, but you have turned aside from the way the way that Levi did it, the way that the descendants were supposed to continue. You turned away from my covenant. You have caused many to stumble by your instructions. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despise and abase before all of the people insomuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instructions. They became so relaxed to the law of God that they were not only disobedient themselves, but they were leading the people of God into disobedience. And as we kind of been thinking through this idea of darkness in the land and trying to put ourselves in their shoes, as this is the last book written before the New Testament enters the scene, we know that there's just about 400 years of silence where we get just jumped into in Matthew chapter 1. And what enters the scene are these Pharisees and Sadducees. And what I would like to understand very quickly before we move on to the next one is I believe they actually took Malachi to heart. And when they took it to heart, they also took it way too far. They overcorrected. See, Malachi's priest and leadership did not obey the word of God in any form or fashion. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these religious leaders, they begin to add more and more and more and more and more and more to the law. I would argue, most likely, not even out of ill intent, but out of overcorrection of what the people of God had done previously. The reason why I say that is because it's still a form of darkness. It may have been on the other side of darkness, but it's still darkness over the land. And why that is so important is because as we read a little while ago, John 1, not 1 through 5, we're going to skip to verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was light of man. The light shines into darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. See, this is the moment in which the sin of God's people and the sin of God's priests had fallen onto the people of God and God's judgment is about to occur to them. I would argue that judgment is silence for 400 years before he enters the scene. But when he enters the scene, this light is displayed. And this light is not only displayed, but it is conquering. I read it a moment ago, and the reason I want to read it again is so we can understand this a little bit better. Genesis 3, verse 15. As we look at this, what we're going to be looking at is light breaking through the darkness or the Messiah to come. In Genesis 3, 1 through 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his feet. A lot of that's important. Is This is the, the really the judgment of Satan. And in that, he says, you shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head. 
and you shall bruise his heel. It would almost seem like this wasn't going to be a, a great thing because the one that was going to come is going to be bruised and hurt. But by bruised, when we look at the crucifixion of Christ, what we see in this is this promise of one that was going to come and crush the serpent. And then crushing the serpent, his foot would be bruised, meaning that he would die. He'd be laid in the tomb. But it being laid in the tomb, he would rise again and he would crush the serpent. He would crush, crush sin, crush death, crush the grave, and he would bring salvation to all who would trust in him. And see, in verse 5 and verse 11 of chapter 1, gives us another insight of this same principle. But what I would argue is we see this moments and all throughout the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, David, King David. There's one that's going to come and he's going to reign forever. Was that his son? No, that was his descendant to come. Abraham offering his son at the altar, God providing a lamb at the last minute. Was that foreshadowing something? You bet. It was foreshadowing the lamb of God that would be poured out on the altar that there would not be a lamb to replace. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this small pictures pointing to Jesus saying, He is coming. He is coming. He is coming. It started in Genesis 3. And I would argue in Malachi, up until John the Baptist starts declaring, Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We see some of the very last moments in which God was bringing his people to this promise of Christ. Verse 5 says, Your eyes shall see this. And you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. That this Savior that was coming was going to save more than this 150,000 people that made it back to Jerusalem. That this guy coming was going to make sure that the name of the Lord was great beyond the borders of Israel. I'm reminded of what we read week in and week out. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go therefore to all nations, right? Or Acts 1, 8, to Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We see that unfolding in the book of Acts. That's exactly what God does in the book of Acts. He unfolds his perfect plan of salvation to all who would believe and trust in him, not just the Israelites. And in verse five, in verse five, it's this promise of the one that is going to come, that is going to make this happen. And great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel, because why it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And then in verse eleven, it says, "From the rising of the sun to the setting of my name will be great among the nations, and every place incense will be offered to my name, and pure offering." For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. He's saying there's going to be a day coming that I am going to be worshipped in the way that I was intended to be worshipped, not by you or your people and sacrifices of animals and all these other things, but in all of the nations. Because this one that is going to come, what he is going to do, is he's going to lead people to worship in spirit and in truth. And this is exactly what Jesus explains to the woman at the well. See, the reality is God is a God that deserves to be worshipped with our lives and every aspect of who we are. But it is never done separate from us serving and worshiping him through Christ Jesus. So as we look at this, 
let us be quick to remember this was to a group of people in a very dark time telling of a Savior that is to come that would redeem them. And what I want to say to us as Troy comes and gets ready to lead us in this last song is God has left us with another promise. The same Savior that was born is a Savior that will return. And his promise to us is that he is coming back one day. And when he comes back, he's going to make everything right again. And he's given that to us, his messengers, his Malachi, per se. And in that, what he's calling us to do is to go into a land that is certainly dark. And over in, in darkness, d- 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 displayed throughout all of society, not only in America, but all over the world. And he's calling us to be people that are taking this message of light to those around us that are dying and going to hell because they do not know Christ as their Savior. And as they come to know him and trust in him, he's calling us to disciple them so that they can then go and do the same thing. So we can look at Malachi and we can point fingers at the people of God and the prophets of God and the priests of God that were doing everything contrary to the word of God. But don't let us do that without first asking ourselves, are we being like them? Are we giving God all that we are? Are we worshiping him with our first fruits per se? Are we serving God? Are we willing to go into the darkness with the light? Are we willing to declare the message of God and do what is right? Or are we going to be like the people of Malachi's day and just continue to descend into the darkness of our own sin and our own heart? Let's pray together.